This is Ken Burns, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. And I remember buying Meet the Beatles, and I bought it at the drugstore, and I had my own money, I don't know how, or the girl at the cash register was had to have been just a, a young teenager, and I felt like such a little girl. And it was embarrassing for me to buy this record because, you know, I, I think I blushed, you know, because I was so in love. And I'm eight years old, and, and I'll never forget this girl goes, play it all night. And I'm like, yeah. Today's guest is Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter and musician Sean Colvin. After plying her trade on the club circuits in Carbondale, Illinois, and Berkeley, California, Colvin relocated to New York City, joining the Buddy Miller Band in 1980 and becoming involved in the Fast Folk Cooperative of Greenwich Village. In 1987, producer Steve Adabo hired her to sing backup vocals on the hit single Luca by Suzanne Vega. After touring with Vega, Colvin signed a recording track with Columbia Records and released her debut LP, Steady On, in 1989. The album won a Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Folk Album. Colvin's second record, Fat City, was released in 1992 and received a Grammy nomination for Best Contemporary Folk Recording. Her song, I Don't Know Why, was nominated for a Grammy in the Best Female Vocal category. Colvin's career soared to new heights after the 1996 release of her album, A Few Small Repairs. The critical and commercial success of her single, Sunny Came Home, catapulted her into the mainstream after spending four weeks at the number one spot on the adult contemporary chart. The song won 1998 Grammy Awards for both Song and Record of the Year. In 2012, Colvin published her well-received memoir, Diamond in the Rough. Welcome, Sean Colvin. Perhaps you could tell our listeners about your earliest musical memories. Where did it all begin? Uh, well, let's see. My my uh, probably church, um, church music. Uh, mm-hmm. We went to the first congregational church in Vermilion, South Dakota, and uh, it wasn't really a religious thing that we did. And to me, it was mostly about music. So um, it it was the hymns that we sang and the organ and. And that kind of thing. Um, so that was really the first, you know, my, my my earliest musical memory. My father adored music and also played the banjo and the guitar. And he loved the Kingston Trio. So 
I listen to a lot of Kingston Trio records and listen to my dad play a lot of Kingston Trio songs. Uh, as far as the first one that I remember hearing might have been Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, a real cheery number. And um, <laughs> what else? Uh, Pete Seeger. You loved Pete Seeger. We had a lot of soundtracks in our house. Uh, Sound of Music, Porgy and Bess, The Fantastics. Some of those are off the beaten path, like The Fantastics, but I adored it. You know, you really struck a chord there with uh, the Kingston Trio. My mother um, famously disliked all music. (laughs) She tolerated my love of music, but it just uh, could not. She could not connect with music. There there it is. Um, She could connect with murder mysteries and read uh, literally thousands of them. But the one band she liked was the Kingston Trio. Oh, there you go. (laughs) That's funny. I don't, why aren't kids today listening to Kingston Trio, do you wonder? What would it take for us to bring them back? Jeez. <clears throat> A tribute album with Beyonce? I don't know. <laughs> uh, that might do it. That might do it. So, might do it. <laughs> when, did you, when did you become a, a performer or a songwriter? Which came first, the performer, the songwriter, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> well, definitely the performer part. I, I, um, I was in the junior choir at church. I lived in Vermilion until I was 11 years old. And they formed a junior choir when I was about seven. So uh, myself and maybe five, six, seven other young people were part of this choir. Um, I got a solo one year in uh, during Christmas, during our Christmas music. And um, I was all for it. You know, and my uh, my best friend and I, her father was the um, organist and the choir director at church, were just mad for music and would sing and play. Well, not play. I didn't know the guitar yet, but would sing to each other together to whoever would listen, basically. So I wasn't afraid of getting in front of people. If I got, you know, if I stood up in front of the whole congregation, not to mention, you know, I was nervous, but, and, and saying a verse of something. <laughs> and so when does the songwriting come up, come about? Well, and I forgot to mention that uh, my, my, my brother, before my little brother and sister were born, my older brother and my parents would take road trips and we would sing hymns in the car. Now, mind you, we were not a religious family, but we went to church and music was a big part of it. So we would sing hymns and Christmas carols in the car in three and four part harmony. So everyone was fairly musically adept, you know. And, um, and then my father taught me to play the guitar when I was 10. So without the guitar, I don't think I would have written any songs. It was sort of we were tied at the hip and I learned everything I could um, including every song I could figure out by any number of artists that I adored and then eventually uh, it took me a long time but eventually I, I tried to compose my own stuff and was that simply because you had a guitar you as you said you were joined at the hip and it was there and so music began to you know, creep into your psyche or was it a, like a clear ambition? I don't know that it was clear ambition because certainly as a young person in South Dakota, nobody went to show business, but I'm sure I dream, you know, I had 
you know, fantasies of it. But I like to think, and I think I'm a good judge of it, that uh, music was, I was, was born into my psyche, really. Uh, I just found that I took to it. I was good at it um, in terms of being a singer. I caught on quickly and I learned the guitar fairly quickly. And uh, I was, I was a, a quick study. Let's put it that way. And it was what I loved to do. And I couldn't, even as a, uh, uh, an eight-year-old, I couldn't fathom doing anything a- academic in academics. That was not, that didn't appeal to me. It was going to be acting, visual arts, or music. That's what I thought to myself. Nice. And that is a bit of a, an ambition, right? Um, describing where you lived at the time and and you said people didn't have those kinds of aspirations. Was it something you just kept to yourself or how do you treat that? I think I was too young to, to actually, you know, wax rhapsodic about what my career was going to be. I think I kept it in, in my dreams and fantasies and probably myself didn't even think they would ever come true. But um, that was my, um, you know, my dream. And uh, I, I'm trying to remember when it took root. And I thought, I don't know that I ever thought, oh, I'm going to make a lot of money off this and I'm going to get famous. It was my um, dream. It was my fantasy for that to happen. But I just kind of took it bit by bit and got better and better and found a group of friends in junior high and high school. We'd moved to Illinois by then, uh, who also played the guitar, a couple of girlfriends of mine. And certainly I discovered the Beatles by this time, obviously. <laughs> um, and uh, But other musicians as well, especially acoustic guitar players and songwriters. And we just lived on it. And I was good at it and I was quick at it and I got cast in the musicals at school as the lead every time. (laughs) So I was just, you know, and we would play at my parents, play and sing, you know, certain number of us at my parents' parties, at their parents' parties, just anybody that would listen. We were a game to play and sing whatever we'd learned that day. Nice. I was uh, talking to a fellow here on the shore, on the Jersey Shore, uh, which, as you know, is a is a musical area in its own right. Slightly, yeah. (laughs) And uh, this fellow I was talking to, I said, well, I'm talking to Sean Colvin later. And he said, oh, that is awesome. He said she has her own style uh, of picking. Uh, Is this something you were cognizant of that maybe you were doing something that was a little different that uh, could almost be considered a signature because I think, I think we can definitely hear that in your playing. You know, I think I was pretty by the book until I really started paying my dues in clubs and bars and dives where often it's not people wouldn't listen. And that especially was true after I moved to New York city And I got a lot of work uh, playing, you know, four sets a night in dives and bars and clubs uh, where people often didn't listen. So I kind of took a page from Richard Thompson's book and Joni Mitchell's book. So guitar wise, 
you know, um, Richard, Joni played in a lot of tunings too, but Richard, I could figure those out better. So, uh, you know, an open D tuning or E tuning or um, made a lot bigger sound, you know, than um, regular tuning. And Joni had a way of clicking the guitar strings when she played. You can hear it very obviously. And it, uh, it created percussion, you know, and I always thought she was doing it with the, the back of her hand, not to, well, you know, the meaty part between like where your thumb is and the back of your wrist is. And I thought that's how she was doing it. So I was hitting my, my, uh, wrist as I strummed and stuff, uh, against the strings to give, to make them sound percussive. And that, you know, I thought if I can make it sound like there's some drums around here, maybe people will pay attention, you know? So I made the guitar sound bigger. I made it sound more, I made it percussive. And that's what I attribute, whatever people call my style. uh, That's what I'm thinking of when I, when I try to figure out, you know, what that was about or where it came from. Let's talk about those clubs for a moment. It must've been, um, uh, at some place in your mind, right? Pretty daring to to leave the you know the heartland and head to New York City. Were you uh, were you just driven and didn't think a, have a second thought about it, or was it was it this monumental kind of um, choice that you had to make? Well, there were stops in between, um, but by the time I was eighteen and living in Illinois, and I graduated high school. And I could legally play in the bars. I quit university. Uh, I had no interest in it. And I just started making my living. It was a meager living, but I started making my living playing. Uh, Then I moved to Austin, Texas with a band and made my living in a, you know, playing, performing. Uh, Then I moved to the Bay Area. Don't ask why. (laughs) <laughs> and I have nothing against it, but no point going into that and got work there, but wasn't really at home, you know, didn't, didn't feel like I really connected with that area. And then my friend, Buddy Miller, who you may have heard of, um, lived in New York at the time and um, needed someone to sing with him in his country swing band and I was ready to go. So I had a job waiting for me. And I went to New York and stayed there for 14 years. I just didn't know what else to do. This was it. There was nothing else that I even cared to try. And so I, I don't know that I always thought I would make it. Uh-huh. But this is what was me. This was me. And I had the opportunity to do it. And even though I wasn't becoming a millionaire or gaining fame and fortune, it's, I loved it. We'll be back with more from Sean Colvin after these messages. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back with Sean Colvin on everything Fab Four. Those moments when you can take chances before you start establishing various kinds of rooted lifestyle, right, are during that period. And that's when you can really, as you said, not that you should ever stop believing in yourself, but it did make a difference, right, uh, being in that period. It takes gumption. But like I said, I was kind of like a train. This is just what I was meant to do. Um, and I don't know how long I'd have stayed at it if if I couldn't have made a good living or, um, you know, gotten a record deal eventually. But I was 30 when I got the record deal, so it took a while. Um, but my advice to younger people who want to know how to break in or what to do, and it's like, the Beatles in Hamburg, you know, get out there and play and play, play where they can't even hear you. Just get good. Hmm. You know, we, we, our friend Steve Van Zant was on the show uh, the year before last, I believe. And um, he talked about just the essential nature of playing live in the way you're describing to be able to understand energy and how it's there with an audience or in some cases not Mm -hmm. Um, what what did you learn from you know from grinding it out as you did for low those many years i learned a lot um i mean uh with buddy's band and with bands i was in after that, it was a four set a night gig, you know, so we're talking being at the club for four or five hours. Same with playing solo. And I had gigs kind of with all over, both with bands and by myself. I'm talking about New York. And you play a long time and you just get good. Uh, and it, it does take guts and gumption because there's no guarantee anybody's going to hear you, but you get better. Um, so if you're willing, if you love it enough, you know, and and are willing to pay your dues, really, and not everybody has to, but I think it's good exercise, you know, <laughs> and uh, you, you, if you have stage fright, you certainly begin to get over that. Uh, I, t- when I was starting to write songs and really didn't have any confidence it was kind of a blessing to be at the bitter end is where i played every monday three sets a night with an hour break between each set so i was there for five hours and i started to no one was listening a lot of the time and i started to kind of experiment with these things that i'd written because nobody could hear them anyway so you can get brave um and it 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 sets you up. It sets you up so well to be, you know, a, a well-known performing artist. So what is your first uh, crystallizing moment uh, with the Beatles? When did, when did that happen for, for young Sean? Well, I'm sure no one's ever mentioned this before, but it was the Ed Sullivan show, if you can believe that. that. Is, yeah, that's never come up. It's never come up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm the first. Uh, yes, it was the Ed Sullivan show. And uh, what was I, maybe seven? I don't like to count the years, but I was born in 56, so you do the math. And uh, that was kind of that. Uh, 
I was in love immediately. Um, and I remember my, buying Meet the Beatles. And I I think I was eight. I, I don't, you know, you get the picture. And I bought it at the drugstore. And I had my own money. I don't know how. And the woman or the girl at the cash register was had to have been just an, a young teenager. And I felt like such a little girl and it was embarrassing for me to buy this record because you know I, I think I blushed you know because I was so in love and I'm eight years old and and I'll never forget this girl goes play it all night and I'm like yeah <laughs> I was embarrassed but I did I played it all night so what was it then about the sound or what you saw on, on that Sunday night that, that you connected with so deeply? You know, it's hard to say at that age. Of course, they were adorable. Um, but that wasn't it. I've seen adorable bands before um, and since. And they were just so tight and so special and so soulful and so full of <sighs> joy de vivre, you know, verve or whatever, however you say it, just the energy coming off of those guys and the confidence and the playfulness and just the musicianship, you know, it was just beyond. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. Isn't it strange when we think back about that time how we have all of those wonderful qualities as you just described them and which are all integral of course to a great sound etc but that was just for americans at least that was the starting point and they didn't stay there you know the I suppose we're not talking about them right now and and dedicating a, a podcast to this kind of discovery if not for uh if not for that growth right yeah yeah i mean just throughout their short-lived career because it's stunning to think of how much they produced in that short amount of time <laughs> that's absolutely true ken townsend the uh the inventor of adt and uh such a key part of their story the um the maintenance engineer at abbey road and the fellow who would later suggest hey we should call this place abbey road and really take advantage of that connection oh, wow. Wow. yeah he he said that it's amazing that so much of of the legend there in st john's wood comes from barely seven years of recording oh. you know and for it's... them to do what they've done to have that trajectory from love me do to abbey road is pretty scary once in a lifetime and maybe even rarer than that you know, that's how I feel about it. And I also feel, I mean, I've, I've been to Liverpool. I did the Magical Mystery Tour. And two things got me the most. One was the shelter in the middle of the roundabout. I mean, that brought it home. I'm like, holy moly, there's the shelter in the middle of the dang roundabout. You know, I mean, that's just a, that's just a, a place in his memory and it's penny it's in the song i just it just knocked me dead did you did you go to the boyhood homes i did i did absolutely um went to the boyhood homes and at that point john had been gone 
maybe 20 years. I mean, it was, that was a very poignant moment. Um, yeah, I went to the boyhood homes, Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane. Oh, I know what I was going to tell you. Went by the parking lot where John and Paul met the, in the, uh, the, the church parking lot. To this day, I think it was June 6th that that happened. I forget what year. Is that correct? Do you know? It was July 6th, 1957. July 6th. July 6th. Okay, not June 6th. I mean, to me, it's a spiritual moment. I mean, how did that happen? What are the chances? And then George and then Rick. I mean, how old were they? 15 years old, I believe. It's it's uh, it's religion to me, I swear. I mean, it's a miracle. It is a miracle, right, that we have all of this great music and that, of course, it's an outlier. It resonates in ways that so much of world music doesn't um, it really does have that kind of long history or that ability to eclipse generations and clearly they do um do you, and i know this is not a fair question but um did they enter your mind when you think about songwriting and song structure certainly um although i have to say you know, I was taken in fully by what I like to call the great folk scare of like 69 and 70. And these were, you know, acoustic guitar people that played primarily acoustic guitar and wrote confessional songs, just to put it in a nutshell, which is probably a disservice. But um, so I, I learned tons of Beatles songs. Uh, when I was first learning guitar and figuring stuff out, I was trying to get my friends to sing the harmonies to If I Fell, and they were horrible, you know. So I was I, I, I was trying, and um, I just knew a lot of Beatles songs. But then I kind of honed my um, skills as a guitar player on James and Joni and Paul Simon and uh, Bonnie Raitt and jackson brown and i'll always forget people but there you have it uh interestingly enough as far as um putting beatles touches into songs a lot of that had to do with um my co-writer and sometimes producer john leventhal who had the means and the knowledge and the skill and the practice to take specific things and, you know, turn them on their ear and, and play them. So there's all kinds of moments in our records that are tips of the hat to the Beatles. And well, and then there are times, of course, when you've, you've performed covers, right. Um, of Beatles songs Oh yeah. Uh, on record. Am I remembering correctly? You did a recording of I'll be back did yeah i'm very proud of that um it just came to me you know it's an entirely different version than is on beale 65 at least the american version of that uh record and uh, yeah i'm really proud of it, it just kind of came to me one day when i was on a tour i wanted to do a cover song and i just slowed it way down of course and made it very mournful which is my specialty <laughs> and yeah i recorded it i recorded it on a a greatest hits kind of record, I think, as an extra track. Well, it's uh, such a 
magnificent moment, certainly for the Beatles, right? Because, you know, it it signaled a kind of turning point. It's a different kind of song. Mm-hmm. Uh, for them. And your version, which I strongly encourage our listeners to check out, mournful, a powerful, but very apt word for what is happening there, because you're mining out some of those deeper, darker emotions that do exist inside that song, right? Yes, they most certainly do. It's and you, it's quite mournful. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, it's this revelation that all the love stories don't actually work out. <laughs> no, they don't. And uh, no, they don't. I mean, that I, I, I'm going to have trouble remembering every song on that record and, and trying to back up this. But I'm thinking of now, like, no reply, um, which I'm pretty sure starts off that record. Am I wrong? I believe you're correct, right? And that song, too, is about what happens when it's over and your beloved won't take your calls, essentially, anymore. Won't take your calls. Well, I have a friend who's a a Beatles nut, my friend Dave Merkin, and uh, I played Beatles trivia with him, and and he kicked my ass so hard. It was just he knew things nobody should ever know. (laughs) And he claims that no reply is really about a stalker. (laughs) You know what? Like, so I think, you know, I saw we, him peek through your window. He's like hanging around. <laughs> well, I agree with your friend because Do you? At my students, when we talk about that song in class, they zero in on that very quickly. It's as though he's across the street, right? In the trees with binoculars. It is. Yeah, it's. Uh, I never thought of it that way when I was younger. But, you know, if I examine it now, I, I see their point. Yeah, in fact, it's. Um, I remember one young woman saying, "When you hear that song, you want to call nine one one, right? <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> get some help or at least uh, a restraining that's fantastic. order." <laughs> and wasn't "Babies in Black" on that as well? Sure. What do you think about that one? I love it. I recorded a cover of it with Steve Earle. We made a record together, and we did "Babies in Black." It's got that crazy good middle eight harmony, right? With the uh, oh, oh, how long will it take? So good. It's so good. And, you know, in those early tours, when they were frustrated and just trying to get through it all, it's interesting that they included that song on their set list. They didn't have to. They could have continued to do A Hard Day's Night and She Loves You, but they they trotted that out there, which always suggests to me how special it must have been for them. Yeah, that makes sense. And I always, I guess I would project onto that also that, um, you know, nobody was listening. So I feel like maybe they had a sense of humor about throwing a song like that in, you know, like these girls don't know even what they're hearing. This is about a a girlfriend who has a dead boyfriend. <laughs> this other guy is longing after her, you know, it's like, I just had to imagine they've been, you know, they were chuckling about it. <laughs> I bet you're right. Because that no one could hear a thing. With those no. tiny amplifiers and all the screaming. I know our listeners would be pretty irate with me if I didn't ask about the genesis behind Sonny Came Home, that fantastic song. Tell us more. You know, it's not as compelling a story as you would think. It it came about because I had a deadline 
and because I couldn't figure out what to do and I kind of went outside my normal way to construct lyrics in a song, which is get inspiration, think of a muse, you know, um, this was a fictional story. I don't write fictional stories, you know? So what happened was I was up against the wall time-wise had a piece of music from Leventhal and couldn't figure out any lyrics for it. Uh, but I had already chosen the cover of the record, which was a painting by a friend of mine named Julie Speed. And it shows a woman in the foreground with a lit match and then a vast sort of background of prairie land with a what it must be an enormous fire way, way, way back on the horizon. And I thought, write about her. And that's how I did it. <laughs> and, and it just was fun. It was fun. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't heart bleeding, you know, on that one. I was, I was having a good time and she obviously did something very destructive for a good reason. And, uh, it was a revenge song and, and, uh, you know, go figure and look what happened. <laughs> well, revenge songs, of course, are their own great genre all by themselves. Well, this is uh, true. <laughs> so you're, t you're saying you're not in fact a serial arsonist. Well, if, if <laughs> no, but if you read, I, I, wrote a memoir actually it came out in 2012 and i kind of started in the foreword of talking about the fires that have played roles in my life um you know two or three times it's pretty funny but no i'm not a serial arsonist everything fab four is presented by salon.com the premier news politics innovation and arts website for more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie, Mal Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. 